everybody, it's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you've tuned in to another exciting, thrilling episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. And before we get to all the thrills and chills, the shocking, you won't believe your eyes movie we're about to discuss, I have to introduce its biggest fan, perhaps, the one, the only, Fabulous, Michael Verratti. Hi, Peaches. Yes, you are right. I am so, so excited to talk about this week's movie because not only is it near and dear to my heart, but it really is part of a healthy diet for cult film fans. <laughs> well said, Michael. Now, um, I suppose that this episode is going to be special for a number of reasons, but I think one of the reasons that makes it truly special is the knowledge I have that this film in particular is one that you have been chomping at the bit to have us do because you've been chomping uh, <laughs> at the vegetable wait, waiting for this episode because this episode in many ways is deeper than just looking at a movie, but it's also what led in some ways to your fandom of this genre, the wider genre of cult movies. And your discovery of this film was in some ways life-changing. So I have the pleasure, listeners, of asking Michael a bunch of questions because he is our super fan on today's show. We do have another guest. We only have one guest, but Michael is filling in as the super fan guest spot on today's episode. So, yeah, Michael, let's get started. When did it all start for you? When did it begin? When did you first see this movie? You know, that first question we always ask folks. Sure, and let's get into it. But for those who are wondering, first, I probably should tell them what it is we're talking about. Oh, my God. No, I, I'm just so excited to interview you that I just jumped the shark there. Well, maybe you jumped the garden, if you will. <laughs> And with that in mind, they'll beat you, bash you, squish you, mash you, and chew you up for brunch, and then finish you off for dinner or lunch. That's right, we are talking about 1978's Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, directed by John DeBello, written by Costa Dillon, John DeBello, and Steve Peace, and uh, the midnight movie that really gave way to a whole bizarre franchise that was pop culture defining in many, many ways. And as Peaches said, yes, this movie is very, very crucial to my own origins in the world of cult. And uh, I'm so excited to be celebrating it today. Well, then let's get back to it. Now that we know what we're talking about, uh, I, I guess I could go ahead and ask that first question. So as we were saying, Michael is a huge super fan of this movie. And that's not to say that I'm not a fan of this movie. I am. But there are certain films that Michael or myself have a deeper connection with, which is pretty obvious if you listen to the podcast regularly. Yes. And there, there are the films that I think you and I actually are about equally enthusiastic about, you know, because they they touched us both so deeply. And this film is one that really you have a long term relationship with. Let's go back to the beginning. When did you first fall in love with Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? I've alluded to this origin a few times on the show, and I've talked about it in other interviews more in full, but I think this is the first time I get to really tell this story on Midnight Mass. And Peaches is absolutely correct. Killer Tomatoes are a core part of my origins in cult and my love of, of cult cinema and horror and exploitation and all of that because when I was a little kid, I was a scaredy cat. I did not like 
anything spooky or scary early on. Uh, my parents loved to tell the story that if the music on a television show would even get a little dramatic, I would run over and turn off the TV because I just didn't want to see it. I didn't want to deal with it. Wow. So, you know, for them, they'd be watching like a police procedural and I'd be like, nope, click. And then, you know, they're like, great, cool. What the fuck? But at the time, as I have mentioned many, many times in the past, there was this show called USA Up All Night that played on Friday and Saturday nights on the USA Network. And they showed a lot of horror movies and cult movies and B movies and sex comedies. And I was pouring through the TV guide, I remember, because that's I'm old enough that that's how I had to find out what was playing on television. And USA Up All Night was advertising that they were going to be doing a double feature of two movies called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And instantly I was transfixed by this title. It's so absurd. How can a tomato be killer? So I was like, I have to watch this. And I was telling my mom, I, I want to watch this. I want to watch this. Basically endlessly begging, like, I need to stay up. I need to see this. And my mom, being a cool parent, was not going to tell me no, despite her knowledge of the fact that like I was easily freaked out by everything. But she did the smart thing and said, okay, you can watch that. But how about I stay up and watch it with you? Like, let's make it a movie event. So she makes a big bowl of popcorn. The night comes and, you know, 15 minutes into the movie, she passes out. I, however, stay up and watch the whole thing. And then I also watched the whole of Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And it was like a revelation. And how it used to happen on Up All Night is they would just show the double feature back to back to back till morning, like Rhonda or Gilbert would sign off, Rhonda Shearer or Gilbert Godfrey, depending what night they hosted. But then USA would just show the movies a couple more times until network sign off. And because my mom was sleeping, I ended up just watching both of the movies more than once that night. And I always refer to this moment as my baptism into the world of cult movies because it, it literally fundamentally changed me. Because in addition to the content of what I saw in those films, I had this realization that these were very different movies than the movies that I was seeing on television during the day or that were playing at my local multiplex or that my friends were talking about at school. And when I had this epiphany that there was a whole other world of movies out there that no one I knew was talking about or that were different from the kind of movies that my friends were talking about. I wanted to know about them because there was a sense to it that felt forbidden, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so I started seeking these kinds of movies out. And, and, you know, admittedly, Killer Tomatoes is a horror comedy. It's not an all-out horror movie, but it was it was the wading into the waters that I needed that I kept, like, going deeper and deeper into that, like, forbidden territory. And then I did see things like Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw and Night of the Creeps and all these movies that, like, leads us here today to Midnight Mass that I've been celebrating and extolling. And now I'm not a scaredy cat. Now these are the only movies I want to watch. So. As far as I know, you're the first person I've met whose gateway into horror was this particular series. So for that alone, that's really, you know, fantastic because you're right. It is a comedy, you know, almost yeah. more than anything. And it's also a parody. Um, but you were so young. I don't think you probably understood that it was a parody because you you hadn't seen the films of the 50s that they were kind of um, sending up, right? So you watched it with this sort of um, naive or innocence that maybe it wasn't even designed for that, which I love because you got to enjoy the, the movie as, as if it were an earnest 50s horror movie. Do you remember being scared by it? Did it freak you out? No, you know what? I really wasn't scared by it. I think that it was that perfect blend of absurdity and slapstick with the actual menace. 
that made it just fun. It was a movie that you just wanted to celebrate while you're watching it because, you know, it, it is boldly comedy. Yeah. Even as a little kid, I knew that I wasn't necessarily, you know, seeing something that was akin to, uh, I don't know, like Texas Chainsaw. Right. I, I knew that I was supposed to laugh at it, but the idea that the world is going to war with tomatoes yeah, and that the tomatoes are fighting back and that there was just this like larger concept. It, it made me laugh and I thought it was fun, but it's also like kind of wild to imagine the surrealistic absurdity of that even happening. And when you kind of, when you willingly engage with the weird, there's a joy to that. So I never I, I never was scared. And I think it was the perfect way for me to finally cross over into this world. Well, it is definitely a comedy. And it also is one of those weird movies that is sending up monster movies, horror movies, creature features. Um, all of those things. And so you were obviously drawn to both because I could see a certain kid being um, a fan of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and then sort of it being their entrance into comedy, into, you know, discovering airplane movies and Naked Gun and going into the world of comedy and becoming a comedy writer or a stand-up comedian. And I'm sure Attack of the Killer Tomatoes did inspire comedians, you know? You're right, though. I think the DNA for the draw to the darker side was probably our already there or always there. I just needed to have the thing to open the door. Yeah. When I hosted Dead for Filth and I would sit and talk to horror creators, one common thread that I, I discovered in all of those very long form conversations about their origins was how many folks had similar stories. I used to be scared of everything until. And I think that that's very natural. I think we in this world that we live in and this job that we have, we interact with a lot of people that want to tell us, well, I was never really into horror movies. And for some people, they recognize that they are afraid of the material. And so they put distance and then other people become obsessed with it. It's the idea that like, I'm afraid of this. So why? And so then you kind of want to know more. And the next thing you know, this thing that you thought you were afraid of you can't get enough of because mm. you have invited it in. It's just interesting to see what the entry point is for different people. And for me, it just happened to be this. You're right. I could have veered into comedy, but this also was my gateway to horror. That is really fascinating because I honestly had never considered that before. That, that notion that one thing we have in common is our ability to have been afraid and to have been scared by these things. I mean, I don't know if I talked about it on the podcast before. There's two memories that jump to my mind. One, I think I've talked about on the podcast before, which is finally bringing home A Nightmare on Elm Street when the VHS tape came out and getting to the part where Freddy's claw comes up through that bathtub between Nancy's legs and me having to stop the tape repeatedly rewind and start watching the movie over and over again. I was petrified that moment. Right. I did not want to see what was going to happen next. My imagination had run wild. And as we know, as fans of the movies, nothing very um, bloody happens next. She gets pulled underwater for a few seconds and her mother knocks on the door and wakes her up. Right. But my mind could not as a child allow me to continue watching because it had invented what was going to happen next. I was already creating it, which is just hilarious because I think it's exactly what you're talking about. Plus, uh, another memory that I have in relationship to haunted attractions, which are all designed to elicit screams and give people those thrills of being scared, is that I actually had forgotten about this. I was so young. My mother reminded me. Maybe I've talked about this on the podcast as well. I don't remember. But we were going to go to Disney World. And before we went to Disney World, and I was little, like a little kid, I was only interested in the Haunted Mansion. 
only wanted to go to the Haunted Mansion. Now, I always liked spooky things, but we get to Disney World. We make a beeline for the Haunted Mansion when we get into the Magic Kingdom. We get up to the Haunted Mansion, and what my parents remember more than anything is me staring at it, looking up at it, and saying, nope, I'm not going in. (laughs) You know what's funny about that is I have a very similar story. When I was younger, my parents took me to Disney World, and we stood in line. My parents like to say that we stood in line for hours, which may or may not be true. My memory of it is probably not as sharp as theirs, for Pirates of the Caribbean. And I guess we got close enough that I saw a skeleton and I was like, absolutely not. (laughs) And I like made one of them take me out of line and the other one went on the ride. So, and that was of course pre-Killer Tomatoes. Your parents sound like uh, more reasonable parents because have you heard the story that Diane picked me up kicking and screaming and Disney employees were asking her to stop and she dragged me into that fucking haunted mansion, kicking and screaming my mother forced me in the door. <laughs> and she said that once I got in there, you know, I was just wide-eyed and terrified. And that when it was over, guess what I could not get enough of? The entire rest of the trip was me going through the haunted mansion. So my mother was like, and she was literally, she'll tell the story to this day. And my father will say the same thing. They were worried that Disney was going to throw them out of the park for child abuse. <laughs> well, what I'm hearing in this story is, is Diane being directly responsible for thrusting you into the world of horror. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I guess she knew that I would regret it. She knew that I had only looked at pictures. I had the record from the Haunted Mansion. I had the picture book. I was obsessed. So she knew that it was going to be a big regret. And there's another childhood memory similar where I would stare at the Morbid Manor, which is really the big haunted attraction in Ocean City where I grew up that was so fucking terrifying. It was so scary. And I would just sit and stare at it as a kid and I would watch people go in and come out. And often I did not have the courage to go in that whatever particular night. And I would return and I would go in. So I love this idea because I I haven't thought about it too much, but maybe we are connected in this way. And and obviously you've experienced it with Dead for Filth and being able to, you know, sort of investigate what we have in common as horror fans. And I think that that imagination that we have that allows us to um, experience something like Killer Tomatoes or Disney's Haunted Mansion, and then to to allow ourselves to believe that this is frightening is a special thing. Yeah, and it's that allure, I think, of engagement with the imperceivable or the forbidden. There's something exciting about it that once you get past your concern or your fear, you're fascinated. And I think that's something that we all can relate to, whether you're a horror fan or not. I just think that for folks like us and artists like us, that's what the continued drawback is. I definitely think that that connection is sort of a light bulb moment for me on today's (laughs) podcast. I was so young for all that stuff that I think I forget about those things because I had the taste for the thrills and I wanted more. I wanted more. I wanted more. And so, you know, then I spent the next better part of my, well, my entire life, you know, chasing those thrills and actually being interested in making those thrills, you know, maybe because they worked so well on me, I wanted to create them for other people. For you, Killer Tomatoes is that entrance. I have to ask you though, before we move on to our big, important VIP guest, Killer Tomatoes has, as a, 
an entire franchise behind it, as we discussed yeah. with our guest, is the first one. Would you say that's your favorite of the series? You know, I have a great affinity for the first one because it's the one that I saw first, obviously. But I actually would say that Return of the Killer Tomatoes, the second movie, is the one that I love the most, even though I saw them both on the same night. When I started unpacking over the years, what really made them special to me, and we do talk about this with the guests, is the fact that there's a layer here that's beyond just the broad comedy. I think if this was just slapstick comedy, I would have loved it as a kid. It would have been my gateway. And then I probably wouldn't have returned to it. But what's really interesting about Killer Tomatoes is that there is an intelligence to all four of the films because they're really tackling issues. And, you know, the first movie, as you said, is a parody of horror movies. It takes the trope of animal attack horror movies and monster attack horror movies and sends them up and explores why these things engage us. It makes fun of B-movie culture. And it lampoons the very thing that it actually is, which is a bold thing for a movie to do. When we get to Return of the Killer Tomatoes, it's all about the corporatization of pop culture. The movie makes fun of product placement. It makes fun of how movies acquire money. And these were things that I didn't really get as a kid. I just thought it was funny. And there's like, you know, a mad scientist played brilliantly by John Astin creating Killer Tomatoes. But then rewatching it over the years, especially like as I kind of grew into punk culture and horror culture, that's always bucking the mainstream. Here's a movie that's just like, don't you hate it when something that you like becomes mainstream and corporate and taken over? They acknowledge it and they make fun of it. And there was something really genius about that. You know, in the third movie takes on television culture and the fourth movie is this very interesting expose on xenophobia. As I started developing my own career in film, and in writing genre, that's an idea that I always went back to. Sure, you can make a movie with a scare or a shock or a laugh, but if it's disposable, it's disposable. All of the best horror, all of the best genre still is about something underneath. And that's something that I've always held in my heart with my own writing and my own work, whether I'm doing, you know, a TV movie or an, like, you know, an independently financed horror film. I always want to step back and say, what are we trying to say with this? And the seeds of that do start with these movies because as I kept watching them as I was growing up, I began to realize that's what they were doing. Our guests will say later, these movies are about killer tomatoes, but they're really not. And, and that's the genius. Yeah, for sure. And um, rewatching the film, having not seen the movie in so long, I mean, probably since you know, I had been a kid and I didn't connect with it the same way you did. I do think I enjoyed it. And I actually think that I might have seen it. I think maybe Elvira presented it at one point, you know, and that's maybe where I had seen it in the 80s, but also on television like you did. And um, definitely remember thinking it was fun. But I think maybe because I wasn't scared, I, I didn't go back to it, you know, where right. I was really looking for those movies that really, you know, traumatized me. But rewatching it, I think I was much more interested in the comedy of it, the musical of it, the sort of subversive, weird kind of outrageous statements it was making. Some of the comedy, like so many of the movies that we tackle, has not necessarily stood the test of time, but it does not feel mean-spirited, even sure. when it's maybe, uh, quote unquote, offensive. And I think that is to be taken with a grain of salt in some ways. Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned the subversive elements about this, because one of the things in preparation for this episode that I was thinking about is how very much 
the original Attack of the Killer Tomatoes is one of the true tentpole midnight movies. And when you think of the other ones that sort of created midnight movie culture, Pink Flamingos, Night of the Living Dead, Mm -hmm. El Topo, Eraserhead, they all have this element of subversion, taking something about society that we know, like or dislike, and, and sending it up in their own way. And more importantly, all of those films that caught on and created the Midnight Movie were made by regional filmmakers. You've got John Waters in Baltimore, George Romero in Pittsburgh. The idea of of these guys in San Diego making Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it's anti-Hollywood utilizing subversion and transgressive messaging in a fun way that created a whole new culture. Yeah, that's a really, really important thing to remember when talking about this movie. It was made for around $100,000 by new filmmakers in San Diego, and they did it because it was something they just believed in doing. And it ended up becoming part of of the pop culture conversation. Yes, three sequels followed. A Fox animated series spinoff happened. But it all came from the spirit of subversive cinema. And that's really what Midnight Mass is all about. Yeah, and we, on this very special episode, interview the person who really, you know, is responsible for coming up with this ludicrous idea and and has been on this journey, which is such a thrill. Yes, I am so, so excited because our guest this week is the man who made it all happen. From his mind, the killer tomatoes sprung. It's Costa Dillon writer, co-creator, and killer tomato expert, and we're talking to him right now. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, attack of the Killer Tomatoes, they'll beat you, bash you, squish you, mash you, chew you up for brunch, and finish you off for dinner or lunch. She must be rotten to the core. They're standing outside your door. Remember Herbert Farbage while taking out his garbage. He turned around and he did see tomatoes hiding in his tree. Now he's just a memory. Sacramento fell today. They're marching into San Jose. Tomatoes are on their way. The mayor is on vacation. The governor's fed a nation. The police have gone on strike today. The National Guard has run away. Tomatoes will have their day. Welcome back, listeners. If you've ever given your salad a suspicious side eye, well, then it's probably due in large part to our next guest. From his singular vision of a world overrun by predatory produce, he would go on to co-write and produce the 1978 pop culture-defining classic, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. He and his colleagues would return to Penn, produce, and unleash three sequels, 1988's Return of the Killer Tomatoes, 
1991's Killer Tomatoes Strike Back, and 1992's Killer Tomatoes Eat France, as well as the 1986 beer caper Happy Hour. Not just responsible for unleashing the power of nature at the movies, he also has a long and decorated career as part of the National Park Service, having served as a superintendent of a number of the United States' wonderful national parks and earning several meritorious service awards in the process. Please welcome writer, producer, actor, song lyricist, and co-creator of one of the most enduring midnight movie properties of all time, Costa Dillon. Welcome to the show, Costa. Hey, happy to be here. Well, we are so thrilled, as as you know, because uh, we connected after an interview that Peaches and I did for Social Life. I have been talking about this movie for many, many years and its influence on my own career. And so I'm so excited to be celebrating the Killer Tomato movies with you today. And to do so, I think the best place to start is the beginning. Let's take it all the way back. You had the idea for this movie while you were a student at UC Davis. Is that correct? Yes, I started making uh, films in high school, but uh, eventually became my two uh, partners, Steve Peace and John DeBello. In those days, we used what uh, your listeners may not understand, this term called Super 8 film. And <laughs> long, long before it's a Super 8 film so long ago that videotape came in and then videotape went out and <laughs> we got to digital making. So the uh, filmmaking of those days was a little little camera of which you then took a little cartridge and you processed it and got the uh, film back. And it was silent because they didn't have any capability of making sound. So we made essentially silent movies in uh, the mid-70s. The first uh, Killer Tomatoes was a, a silent movie with a loop sound over it for a college class around 1973, I think, somewhere in there. It's like five minutes long or something. But we had done a couple of other little films before that for fun. We would make films and basically take them down to the local school or gym or something and charge people 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> recoup our costs and watch our movies. So this led to, of course, you embarking on the ambitious goal of making a feature. And for anyone who goes from making the short films to the feature, they know it's a big leap. Somehow, somehow making short films, it's just a lot more manageable. It's a great way to learn as filmmakers, for sure. But a feature is a whole other beast. And so what was the process like for you? Because as someone who is watching it all these years later, I can't believe how just totally gonzo nuts it is. And, you know, how many sort of uh, risks you took and rules you broke to make this wild movie. How did that evolve? We had actually started our own little film company here in San Diego, mostly shooting sports films. And mm -hmm. we had some college uh, contracts and so forth. So we owned our own film processor. There are only two companies in San Diego oh. that could do that. And we uh, were doing films for hire, some TV commercials and things of that sort. Then we decided, hey, let's make a feature film. <laughs> and uh, well, the reason for that is because when you're 24 years old, you think you're, I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> let's make a feature film. Not realizing exactly how to make a feature film, uh, we just kind of learned by the seat of our pants because none of us the three of us went to film school or anything like that. Whereas outside Hollywood, as you could possibly describe, uh, meaning we knew nobody in the business at all. Mm -hmm. And um, we really had not an inkling of how you make a feature film or how you distribute it. <laughs> so, but we knew how to make movies. And the, the nice thing about Super 8 
is its film. And uh, 35 millimeter is just a bigger piece of film. Mm -hmm. At that time, way back in these olden days, folks, the um, majority of independent films were 16 millimeter, a smaller piece of film. 16 millimeter film, when it was shown in theaters, looked terrible. It was a grainy uh, piece of film. And you'll still see films like that of TV once in a while or streaming, you know, somewhere. We decided we would shoot 35 millimeter film that's one of the reasons why it still looks good. It was pretty much, uh, here's a story. <laughs> we like it. Right. <laughs> you know, it wasn't reviewed by anybody and uh, struck out to make a movie. And we hired a, somebody who knew how to run the camera. We hired some people who knew how to work lights. We uh, hired professional actors, you know, Screen Actors Guild film. And uh, and people always say that. What do you mean those, those are professional actors? <laughs> 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 They're union members. And uh, off we went. So you go out to make the feature, you hire someone who can work the camera, who can do the lights. But when I was doing your intro, I listed just some of the things that you did in this movie. Because if if you watch the credits of this film or you review your filmography, you carry many, many, many credits <laughs> on, on this first film. Uh, you know, production design, art design, all of these, you know, you co-wrote lyrics to the songs. Was part of this movie, in its way, a crash course in making films for you guys, too? Oh, absolutely. As I said, we knew the basics. We knew how to take a piece of film and splice it and make a movie out of it. And we, we had done some editing, that kind of thing. But much more than that, we hadn't really worked with professional actors. You know, I directed fictional scenes. We mostly did sports films and, you know, some TV commercials and stuff, things like that. So that, that definitely took some doing. And then lighting and production design, uh, the idea of, well, what does it look like on 35 millimeter film? And in those days, particularly when you frame a scene, you frame, you have a little box you know, when you look through the camera and it shows you what it looks like on a 135 to one ratio, what it looks like for television and so forth. So that you, you had to be conscious all the time of what ratio you were shooting for because they were different. Today, you know, of course, television and movies are widescreen but in those days television was a square so you you wanted to make sure that something that showed up in the movie didn't show up on tv or whatever and then you also had to be careful of your lighting was it too dark was it too light because you can't see your film until it's done uh unlike today's video you know what it looks like immediately when you get your film back and you realize oh the film doesn't have the latitude that your eye does and it's too dark over there or it's too light over there so it was a lot of uh, learning that kind of thing uh, as we went along. I mean, obviously, I look back on it now and cringe and, and say, oh man, I can't believe we could do that better. Um, <laughs> the lighting is is pretty amateurish, but- Hey, you can see what's going on. That's, sure yeah. that's, all, that, that's, that's all that matters in a lot of these cases, because yeah. as you know, at that time, there's plenty of movies where you're kind of watching like, yeah. what is happening? Like, you know, they didn't do a reshoot when they should have. So, yeah. you know, I, I think you did a, an admirable job. As a film student of the early 90s, late 80s, I graduated from uh, Penn State with a film degree. I think I was the last generation to shoot my senior thesis film on Super 16 and be taught how to edit on flatbeds and 
to do sound. Everything after that moved to, you know, Avid. They got an Avid and they got video, higher end video cameras. And so there is this whole generation that does not understand what you're talking about. And these are people who studied film. Yes. Um, and, and I'm proud that I'm one of the last, you know, to understand it. And then I moved to San Francisco and became a projectionist and got to, you know, be trained by the there union and learn film that way. Of course, all the skills we have are useless now. Right. Nobody cares. <laughs> nobody needs them. But uh, as someone who understands where you were when you made the movie, it's incredible. And what a fantasy to own a film processing lab. My goodness. That's so cool that that's what you that's yeah. how you were able to do it. I guess. But I, I keep figuring, you know, I'm, I'm sure those Kodak chemicals, the lingering cancer in me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is no one in my whole family, grandfather, fathers, nobody that had any loss of hair. Look at me. Ah, <laughs> there you go. Well, I don't know. I've always wondered. Maybe that's why I, I uh, lost lost my hair. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of chemicals. Well, I guess my big question to you is that we're we're, we're definitely talking about the way that this all came together in sort of the operational part of it. But I wanted to ask, where did you all? find commonality as far as your sense of humor goes because the comedy in this film and also the inspiration for the film being you know this sort of modern or this sort of send up of maybe a 50s you know monster movie or you know one of those sort of pulpy films but you really put a specific comedic spin on it that seems very much you. So were you all just hilarious and constantly <laughs> like making each other laugh? I actually was uh, very uh, much introverted in, in high school. Uh, ah. Today, any high school friends I knew would be astonished that this is who I became. Uh, not only this, but in, in my career with the National Park Service, speaking in front of hundreds or thousands of people at a time for, for years, wasn't me in high school. John, though, uh, John was the class president. Steve was the school president. They, uh, as a debate team, won the California State Championship. Um, so they were used to public speaking and, and kind of being out there. Steve eventually became a California State Assemblyman and California State Senator. And Steve still runs a film, uh, his own production house. So uh, it just so happens that we, we came together. Uh, John is the one actually made film First, you know, he had an interest in film. And then Steve and I kind of came along and said, how would you like us to help you make another film and so forth and so on. So it just happened to be that we did all have similar types of humor. It's like any any of these things, you know, how did Lennon find McCartney? It just sometimes it's just serendipity and you get the right people at the right place. Yeah. So you make this movie through all the wild circumstances that come with making an indie B picture, learning on the set. And then it comes out, and I'm sure you probably never thought that you would be thinking about it again as you were moving ahead in your career. <laughs> and so I kind of want to talk about that period of time after the first film, but before Return, because you have a whole decade. Sure. What made you come back to these movies? And what was it like immediately after? What we found out was when you make a film and you don't have any studio backing and you don't have a distributor, uh, there's nobody to see your movie. <laughs> and so hmm. in those days, you had, you had an option. You could try and find a distributor who would send it to um, theaters. You did have theater owners that had their own kind of networks in those days. And you had what was called four-walling, where you could buy out a theater and then you and the theater owner shared the revenue. We, we found that nobody wanted our films. So <laughs> people didn't get the humor. You know, this was before Airplane. 
Uh, some people had seen a Kentucky Fried movie, but it wasn't, you know, a mainstream type film. And so we did have a hard time getting a distributor. Eventually, we formed our own distribution company, North American International, which it says on the bottom of the, well, you know, the one sheet, North American International, which is a name I made up because I figured it sounded like a name other people would say I've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, 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 you're totally right. Yeah, it just sounded like a name other people, I think I've heard of them. <laughs> And uh, so finally we got it out there and yeah, I made a modest amount of money. Um, have a daily variety where it's the, I think 12th or 13th highest grossing film of the week for a while. And then, uh, yeah, disappeared. And we um, continued on with the film company and decided to make another feature film, the uh, four engine happy hour or sour grapes, depending on the distribution company changed the title. There were a lot of problems with that. That's where we really learned how to work with Hollywood because we were dealing with a Hollywood production company at that time and their opinions and changing the script. And pretty soon I didn't even recognize my own story mm. anymore. So I wasn't really happy with the way it came out. And then uh, I wrote another screenplay, which um, is unproduced. We were kind of chugging along, but then something odd happened is on the TV show Muppet Babies, they uh, used a clip from the film that um, again it was Elmo was afraid of nightmares or something and <laughs> all of a sudden it became people recognized the film it came back from the dead a little bit but also even more important the invention of videotape right and home video people often say well one thing about your film I think Peach just said this is it looks yeah. good well because we shot it on negative 35 millimeter mm. almost yeah. unheard of in those days and low budget films, if not shot on 16 millimeter, were shot on positive 35 millimeter. And so when you struck prints off it, it was degrading quality. We shot on a negative film and that meant the prints looked really good. And when they were starting to look for films to move to video, most of the major studios said, absolutely not. Fox and Universal and Paramount, they said, we're not going to put our films on video. It'll, it'll kill the TV market and uh, we won't make any money anymore. We said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, you want it? You got it. And in those days, you know, a video cost like $125, I think, to buy it. It was all, everything was a rental system. But when you went in these little rental stores, and in those days, they're actually in malls. They would have like 200 titles, and there we were. And so people started to rediscover the film. So here we are in, in 1987, and all of a sudden, somebody's interested in making another Killer Tomato movie because of that. And we said, well, we're not interested in doing another Killer Tomato movie. It's the furthest thing from our mind. We got other script ideas. And then they said, you know, what you know is the magic words, we'll pay you. Um, <laughs> <it's> okay, <laughs> we'll make another Killer Trader movie. <laughs> and that's how, you know, 10 years after the first one, we came to do Return of the Killer Tomato. That definitely lines up with my experience because I was one of those kids in the 80s who was going to the video store religiously, you know, on a Thursday or Friday afternoon. And my, my mother would let me pick out a bunch of movies and of course, I was drawn to the horror section. My interest in movies often came down to what the cover looked like and, and how bizarre or strange or wild it mm -hmm. piqued my imagination. And I think especially for young people who were, you know, discovering this sort of way to see movies through video stores, you know, the idea of a killer tomato was just too good to resist and also kind of baffling. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. You, know, you understand a killer shark. You understand, you know, a man with razor blades on his fingers, you know, like, but a killer tomato. So I guess that is my next question. 
Why tomatoes? How did it come to be this idea of a vegetable gone mad? Well, you know, technically tomatoes are fruits. That's right. Sorry. We don't cast aspersions on, you know, they're <laughs> self-identifying. On Saturday afternoons, I'd show these old crummy science fiction movies from the 50s and stuff. And I happened to see one called Attack of the Mushroom People, which mm. I've since found out a lot of people think is a real classic. I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a horror film. It wasn't a humor in it at all. How can anything be more ridiculous than being attacked by mushroom people? And the first thing that came to mind, I don't know why, was was tomatoes, killer tomatoes. And I brought it to, to Steve and John, and I said, you know, I got an idea for a film about, you know, um, making fun of these old Japanese horror movies, and we'll call it Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. In retrospect, I wish I'd picked something easier, like celery or carrots, because tomatoes <laughs> turned out to be really hard to make. Uh, it was one of the major stumbling blocks in making a film is how do you make an eight-foot tomato. But when the cartoon show was made, uh, Fox, we had a lot of disagreements with the uh, people making the cartoon because Fox made the tomatoes have teeth and stuff and eyes and whatever. And it, we couldn't get them to understand that that takes the absurdity out of it. That mm. is, if a tomato is truly dangerous, then it's not weird anymore. <laughs> the right, idea right. is, how can a tomato possibly be dangerous? Because you never see a tomato actually kill anyone, except it's alleged that they squash them. Otherwise, you don't know. Well, yeah, that's the point, is that the absurdity of how can a tomato be dangerous? The second thing people always want to know is, well, where do they come from? We got that question all the time when we started trying to find a distributor. And our point was, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Why do you keep asking that? Nobody asks where Godzilla comes from. Where did King Kong come from? And how can he live? There's a, there's not a Mrs. King Kong. I mean, we're the little King Kongs. Where did, nobody ever right. asked that. <laughs> Who cares where the tomatoes came from? It's not, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Yeah. So the, we tried to keep that um, concept, you know, out there. It is the absurdity that makes it funny. It How could a tomato possibly be dangerous. Well, you speak to the absurdity and, and Peaches mentioned earlier just the sharp humor of this movie and, and these movies. And one of the things that really strikes me as well, and I think this is true of all good comedy as well as all good horror, is there seems to be a thread of, of commentary to the work that you do too. Because the first movie certainly is sort of a send up of B pictures, but then you look at Return and it kind of takes on the corporatization of pop culture. Strikes Back is all, you know, going in on TV culture. When you would sit down and write these, did you always have in the back of your mind this need for a message? Do you wanted to speak to these cultural issues or it just kind of came out? No, that, that, that's by intention. As I tell people, killer tomato movies aren't about killer tomatoes. You're right. The first one is the send up of cheap films. I, I can't tell you how many times somebody will come up to me and say, you know, that giant tomatoes running after the woman in a shopping cart. I can see the little cart that it's being pushed on. And I feel like saying, well, okay, A, did you think it was really a, a real eight-foot tomato? And uh, <laughs> B, I know you can see the cart because we could frame it that way on purpose. You're supposed to be able to see it. They missed the whole point. And that's what makes it, you know, for people who get it, kind of fun, spoof fun, cheap horror films. Yes, definitely. Return of the Killer Tomatoes was to make fun of sequels, the corporate movie making, you know, everything in the first three or four you know, pays off on the third reel, product placement, all that sort of thing. Part of that's because of the unfortunate experience we had making Happy Hour. It was our way to get back at the people who funded that. And then the third film, yeah, um, TV culture and so forth. And the fourth film, we're making fun of Americans' myopic view 
no, of course that isn't what France is really like. <laughs> right. Americans think France is really like, you know, it's all stereotyped uh, image of, of the world outside of the U.S. It's um, broadly spoofing American perspectives of Europe. So the, the, absolutely those things are intentional. Even the moment in Attack of the Killer Tomatoes where I, I really was laughing so hard, but like, let's see if I remember this correctly. The man's interviewing a woman after a, a bit of destruction and he is just the most obnoxious newscaster yeah. who's berating this woman and then says things like, your husband's dead, what are you going to do? You're no spring chicken, you know, all this <laughs> yeah. sort of... Like, it is so funny, but it's also a commentary on the way the media treats survivors of a horrible situation, people who need therapy and empathy. Yeah. It was really, you know, ahead of its time in many ways, you know, that kind of commentary. Yeah, I think so, because um, I had worked at, at Channel 8 News in, here in San Diego uh, processing their film for a while because they needed a film processor. And I worked in the newsroom and I'd done news on the radio and college so I did have that kind of news experience and and yeah it, you know the the thing about comedy is a lot of comedy is either exaggeration or surprise you know you didn't expect it or it's exaggerated well this is just exaggeration but it's just one step it's not that big a step beyond what's really happening and and you're correct it's just uh they probably would do that if they could get away with it oh they do I mean that's the thing is that it sort of rings True in many ways, which which, of course, is my favorite kind of filmmaking. Everyone knows this. This what you're describing is the, the world in which drag queens create comedy. We're exaggerating what's normal and making fun of it, quote unquote, normal, which we see as being bizarre. You know, <laughs> straight America is the most fun to make fun of in a way because of all the absurd things that people accept as as quote unquote normal. Now, I wanted to get back to something you said earlier, because I think it's such a good point as far as the magic of the movie, which is that despite the poster, despite the image, the tomatoes are tomatoes. Yes. They're sentient to some degree. They, I guess they speak their own language right. or you don't really understand. You can't understand what they're saying. But how when you're making an indie film like this, watching it, I was still very impressed with the construction of the tomatoes. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. You know, was it paper mache and just the rolling and how many takes you'd have to do, <laughs> you know, to get them to, I'm assuming there wasn't fishing line and things that these were literally like, someone would say action, someone else would roll a giant tomato, someone would run. I mean, is that how you made the movie? Yeah, it, and it depends on the, the scene. I mean, we... We did have your prima donna star tomatoes who would refuse to do any scene unless <laughs> we, we caught their best side. In retrospect, I'd pick something simpler because we scoured the prop houses in Hollywood and so forth, trying to find something that would work for an eight foot tomato and nothing. There's nothing. We tried balloons and I tried making something out of paper mache. Yeah, I tried chicken wire and PVC pipe and all kinds of stuff didn't work. What we mm. finally ended up with is... Um, at the time, there was a, a defense contractor here in San Diego called War Industries, and they were building the BART cars for San Francisco. And ah. uh, we had a lot of our friends' parents worked at Roar, and they were using a, a material for the insulation of the cars between the interior wall and the exterior wall. And it's a kind of an A and B catalyst thing. You, you put the two things together mm -hmm. and it foams up and hardens. And we realized that would work. So we dug these semicircles in the ground and made a mold and then you know pulled the two halves out and glued them together, whatever size they 
they were going to be. So for the for real tomatoes, yes, we had what I called star tomatoes and extras. <laughs> extras <laughs> had to go down to the food uh, distribution center in San Diego, which is now the gas lab quarter, um, and buy crates of bee tomatoes, stuff that was going to go to being juiced or whatever. And then we would go to the a produce, the really nice looking tomatoes, the ones you get in the grocery store and pay a little higher price for them because they were going to be in the close-ups. And then for the um, the one-foot tomatoes or the three-foot tomatoes, we used the foam stuff. But for the eight-foot tomatoes, the problem was their own weight was their own destruction. So mm. yes, we we did a lot of, we just rolled the tomato and ran the camera or we at the stadium, you know, the cameras, the film's being run backwards when the tomatoes go up the ramp. That was the last major scene we filmed, and and that was the destruction of those tomatoes. <laughs> they, they were in pieces by the end of that date at San Diego Stadium. They had the, the weight of them had had caused them to disintegrate. You know, I love that you say that in retrospect, you wish you had picked a different fruit or vegetable because it then contextualizes the carrots that we see at the end of- That's right. That's why they're there. Exactly. <laughs> I just always thought it was just a funny gag, but now I'm seeing it's your wishful thinking. I wish yeah. it- <laughs> That begs the question, was there ever talk of instead of the, the tomato sequels, what were you ever pushing carrots no. on these people who wanted to invest? Once we got tomatoes, you know, that's where the bread and butter is. All and right. Sometimes we refer to it as the best known, least seen film in America because people, you know, heard of it, but they have, they'll say they haven't seen it. Uh, a number of people have said your title is, is the most valuable thing you have. <laughs> 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 because as you said peaches you saw it on the shelf and you go why would i not want to see that you know yeah <laughs> it's intriguing so um peaches mentions a newscaster and of course john DeBello famously throughout all of the movies plays a newscaster charles white but all of you appear in these movies and you have a variety of roles across <laughs> the four films from the guy in the library to a sag representative to the chop matic of all the roles that you wrote for yourself in these movies do you have a particular favorite that you got to play yeah i am the only person in all four films and um how could i not say that it was fun to act with george clooney i mean he wasn't famous at the time he, he had he had been on facts of life which was a tv show i didn't watch and uh, a couple other small things so i didn't really know him but he was a really nice guy and it was fun to be with him and he actually taught me some acting stuff the the uh, scene we did in the product placement scene with the in the restaurant with the toothpaste and stuff every time we did the scene I thought of something, a funnier way to say it. And I would say it that way. And finally, like a third or fourth time, he said, you got to stop doing that. I memorized all my lines based on what you said. <laughs> what you supposed to say? What's in the script? And I, and I kept thinking, well, but I wrote it. I can change it if I want. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that, no, that's not the way the actor works. Uh, you know, I always used to speak, you know, especially in my park service career, all you're speaking is extemp. So, you know, you know, you memorize stuff, you memorize points. And so I was used to that kind of thing. But no, he had his lines memorized by what my setup line was, and I was messing them up. <laughs> I mean, he was very good natured about it, but it, but, it, but it was like a lesson for me. Oh, that's how actors work. The idea of getting to work with George Clooney in a movie like this, when we know, you know, what a huge mega superstar uh, he's become is, is pretty fantastic that you were able to share that experience. I kind of, I actually forgot he is on Facts of Life, like the, the later incarnation of Facts of Life. But I wanted to ask actually about your career in the park service, because I think it's such an interesting connection as far as 
making a movie about basically nature gone wrong. When you think of something like a fruit or a vegetable, especially a tomato, it comes from the earth. It's it's a very natural mother nature gift. And um, I love national parks. That's one little thing that people probably don't know about me that <laughs> like I recently I'm going to National Glacier Park again in August. It's one of my favorites, you know, in Montana, Mm -hmm. because I loved it so much going a year ago. So I love that you do that. And I wanted to say of interest to some of our listeners, uh, Costa worked in the Fire Island National Park. He did. Wow. I was the superintendent of Fire Island National Seashore. Yeah. I could only imagine what you had to clean up there. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you wore gloves. It's one of the more uh, um, interesting parts of the system. You know, and, and, and I, I could talk about Fire Island for ages. Um, I, I appreciate, yeah, the perspective. And, and especially right now, post-pandemic, everybody's talking about how popular national parks are. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing, you know. And I love my park service career, and I was very successful at it, becoming a superintendent of major parks. There's a lot of people who work for the government that don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they never knew what to make of me. Right. I'd had supervisors from time to time say, you really need to tone down your sense of humor. And I think, no, that's who I am. I don't do scatological humor. I don't make fun of people. Yeah. You know, I don't do anything sacrilegious. It's all, you know, situational humor and so forth. There's nothing wrong with it. Why shouldn't you have fun in the workplace? So it was really interesting. The bureaucracy of the Park Service didn't seem to know what, what to make of me. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, I was... I was at a park, uh, Santa Monica Mountains here in California, and the Secretary of the Interior was coming to visit, Manuel Lujan, and I was the district ranger at the time, so I had to uh, set up a landing zone for the helicopter. You have to light these smoke grenades that they, they, so they show the pilot what the smoke is, and I'm standing out there waiting for the helicopter to land, and, you know, Dan swoops this helicopter, and it lands, and door opens, down comes the Secretary of the Interior, and he walks over to me, and he says, I'm Manuel Lujan. Are you the ranger that wrote Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> so you never know. <laughs> well, that answered my follow-up question. I was going to ask if, if you had been clocked as the Killer Tomatoes guy <laughs> on, on duty, but apparently you have. Now, as we're wrapping up, a question that I tend to like to ask guests about the movies we celebrate is sort of the trajectory of living with them throughout their lives. And when, when I speak to fans, you know, when you're a fan of a cult movie, your relationship with the changes over the years, but you, you made the, this movie, <laughs> you made four of them. You watched mm-hmm. as it went from a project that you and your friends from school developed as a silent short film into a feature, into sequels that spawned a cartoon that became shorthand for genetic vegetables and fruits. And, and you said it's, it's a title known around the world. Looking back to the early 70s to now, how has your relationship with these movies changed and, and grown over the years? Well, that's interesting. I never had that question before. I can't imagine what it's like to be somebody like George Clooney or, you know, Cary Grant, where you are incredibly famous. Because for me, you know, between the A-list celebrities and B-list celebrities, I'm somewhere down Q or R. You know, people have asked me for my autograph, which I think is weird because, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, I really like your movies. Uh, I say, great. And and if they come to me and say, I really like your movies. I've seen it 15 times. I step back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I might not want to be too close to this person. Um, <laughs> it, it does follow me in my park service career. I would never put it in my resume. Other people would find out because some people thought it was too weird and other people thought it was great. I figure, yeah, it'll probably be on my gravestone. 
<laughs> Either that or I figure it out. In little teeny, little teeny itty bitty letters, my gravestone will say, if you can read this, you're standing on top of me, get off. Um, <laughs> one or the other. But it is an odd thing to be, uh, you know, it's not Citizen Kane. So <laughs> being known as the killer tomato guy is, uh, I learned a long time ago to live into it. You know, the um, yeah. when you first start doing this stuff and you get critics telling you how bad it is and they don't like it and so forth, that can be hard. John J. Osborne, the guy who wrote the paper Chase, has a quote I always liked. It said, asking a writer what he thinks of critics is like asking a lamppost what it thinks of dogs. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And, and so you just got to let it go. And comedy is dangerous because most of what makes people, people cry, makes somebody else cry and so forth. But for comedy, either you think it's stupid, you don't get it, or you like it. Right. And and so people tend to search out comedies based on the fact that I like that kind of comedy. I like, mm-hmm. and I used to like Woody Allen comedy back when he did them. It's the Marx Brothers. Somebody likes Adam Sandler. So <laughs> they go and they, right. they find <laughs> that kind of comedy because they know they like it. Right. And I learned a long time ago that this audience is its audience. And if you like my films, great. If you don't like my films, I'm not offended. But um, I, I learned to live with it. I think I speak for a lot of the uh, people that we interview on this podcast, mm-hmm. a cult movie podcast. And then, you know, having built a whole career around celebrating cult movies, screening cult movies, making films, mm-hmm. you know, you have the last laugh because, you know, those critics, they praised some movie that came out the same year that nobody would recognize the title of and nobody remembers and nobody's interviewing anybody related to that movie, you know? And so I think with cult movies, I feel like what's beautiful about it is it is this pure connection between creator and audience and critics actually don't matter. Like Rotten Tomatoes, (laughs) you know, the connection there, of course, you know, tomatoes mean different things to different people, but Rotten Tomatoes is a hilarious aggregator. And most of the movies that we talk about on this podcast have very low Rotten Tomatoes scores, yet they will live forever because of comedy, the unique connection of vision that you had. So, you know, congratulations to you. And, you know, I think it's a great legacy. But one thing we didn't touch on that I know we want to and we have to is... The fact that you could actually call this a musical, uh, you know, which 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 it right. is. Yeah. And, you know, that's on top of everything else. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about just that part of it and how you all decided? Oh, and by the way, we're going to we're going to make it a musical. I don't remember how we decided that. I have to say, I don't remember. We hired uh, two college students from Cal State Northridge, Paul Sunford and Gordon Goodwin, to write the score. Gordon Goodwin, of course, now is a Grammy award-winning composer, arranger, has his own big band, um, quite successful. And um, we just thought it was, you know, he wrote the music first and then we wrote the lyrics, except for the theme song, John wrote that um, entirely on his own before we even finished the script. And it's fun to write parody songs. We do have a few uh, parody songs that I wrote a rap song for Killer Tomatoes Eat France. And writing song parodies is <laughs> really a lot of fun. So. Uh, I don't know how we hit upon it, but uh, we, you know, we hired the Foursquare Symphony Orchestra in Hollywood <laughs> to record it. And again, at those days, most soundtracks for low-budget films were needle drops. You know, you just paid for somebody's already done music or 
you know, three guys with guitars and some drums. Every low budget film sounds like a porno. And we didn't do that. We had a, we've hired a full orchestra for an orchestrated film. And it's one of those things that I think the reason why the film broke out is because its production values were good enough to hold up so that it didn't yeah. look like some really cheap 1978 movie. Right. We accidentally did the right thing. <laughs> that theme song has gone on to have a whole life of its own as well. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. so huge and probably the best midnight movie theme song of all time. I think John wrote it in one night. He just came in one, the next day and said, I got the theme song for the film. We said, okay. It's so wild. It's instantly recognizable. Yeah. And um, also, I have to say, I had forgotten about the song at the very end of the movie between, oh. <laughs> um, you know, the leads. And I forget what his first line is of the song, but it is so funny. Do you remember? I think it was, when I first saw you, I hated your guts. I felt tour love for cigarette butts. <laughs> I mean, that has stood the test of time. I laughed out loud. You know, it just it's it just turns it all on its head, and and you can see how your comedy inspired so many. Well, you mentioned Airplane. I mean, so many styles of movies. You know, the Naked Gun films and the yeah, the music thing is at the end of uh, Mars Attacks. You know, yeah, yes, and yeah. Uh, and of course the guy who sings Puberty Love, which was at the, you know just the attack on <laughs> Donny Osmond is all it was. You know, being yeah. the drummer for Soundgarden. You know, he's um, it just. Uh, and serendipity, you know, some of this stuff. I love that. Oh, it's fabulous. Last question, and I'm sure it's a question you get a lot, but I think our listeners would be remiss if I didn't ask you. But over the years, there's always rumors, there's always whispers. Will we ever get another Killer Tomato movie? I hope so, because I spent all of uh, Thursday and Friday working in a script session. So Ooh. Um, I'm hopeful we will be able to uh, kick this thing out. We didn't own the rights for a long time. Oh. Film one belonged to X, film two belonged to so forth. Fox still owned two, three. So uh, unless they wanted to do a film, nothing was going to happen because we can't, we couldn't do it ourselves. We didn't. Right. Rights have since reverted to us or have been reacquired to us for most of the characters. So now we have a reason to go back in. And so I'm hopeful we'll be able to get something happening. Well, that's exciting. Listeners, keep your eyes and ears out for more vicious vegetables, frightful fruit, however you choose to define it. Costa, thank you so much for taking the time. Yes, thank you. My pleasure. And that was our fantastic guest, Costa Dillon, who was so insightful. Why? Because he was there from the very beginning. And he's been on this journey for a long, long time. I just loved listening to him talk. I thought his humility was actually very, very refreshing and just sweet. There was such a sweetness about him. And yeah, he's not a sour tomato. He's a sweet tomato. <laughs> I had to laugh when he was saying how if someone comes up to him and they tell him that they've seen his movie five times, he's like, oh, should I back away? Because of course that's me. Um, <laughs> but I have internalized these movies in the way that, you know, I, I've been thinking about just how brilliant they are throughout these years. And I, I really loved listening to him talk about the important messaging that he and John DeBello and Steve Peace wove into these films and the fact that they're keeping the legacy going. That He mentioned that they just finished writing a new script for another one. I hope it gets made. I hope the tomatoes 
continue, you know? Yeah, he was so sweet that I didn't get to ask him the question I wanted to ask him because I was afraid that he would take it the wrong way because I believe he's a, a straight man. And here we are, Peaches Christ. Probably, I mean, you know, if he's truly heterosexual, he's probably fighting his desires for me. Um, and Michael. As are we all. <laughs> <laughs> a flaming homosexual, Michael Verratti. So I didn't want to put him on the spot, but my favorite line from the movie is, technically, tomatoes are fags. Bringing that line up, like he might not get that I actually think it's hilarious. Yeah, and it I'm, still I, makes me laugh. It makes me laugh. I mean, it, you know, you have to take everything into, into consideration, like that word at that time, you know, that where we were, I mean, it just is such a ludicrous, stupid thing. And and um, it makes me laugh. I thought it was funny. Well, it's funny too. I think it's actually in a way its own statement because it shows how culturally we try and gender everything. A tomato doesn't have a gender. <laughs> right. So like you can't really, you know, give it that sort of uh, slur because it doesn't even make sense. So to me, it's the absurdity. It's again, the absurdity is messaging. Also, as Costa discussed with us, he worked on Fire Island. So I think that he, is like oh, more than down with the queer cops. Of course he is. The joke, I assume, is that it's usually said, because people don't remember, that tomatoes are fruits, right? They're right. not vegetables. So the line is actually funnier because it's just this sort of other way of saying fruit. Whatever. It's it's one of the queerer moments in the movie. Although, as we discussed with Costa Dillon, there is some comedy in this film that reminded me so much of John Waters and that sort of clever piss take of just what we accept as normal American culture, i.e. the newscaster. That moment with the, the, the woman and that, that newscaster just browbeating that woman is one of the funniest moments in the movie. And it just seems like it could be right out of polyester or something, you know. Their lambasting of media is something that, that runs true across all four films. I mentioned that John DiBello uh, in, in some of the later movies plays a newscaster, John being the director of the movie. And he seems to quite enjoy with vigor making fun of news media personalities. I actually got to interview John DeBello about a decade ago for Ultraviolet Magazine. Uh, and for Patreon listeners, that was another long form interview that I will provide a PDF for just so you can get a little more uh, insight from another creator of the Killer Tomatoes that will be uploaded for our subscribers. Because, you know, honestly, anytime I get to, a chance to sit and talk with the creator of a franchise that I love, now I've got, I've talked to two of them. I, I feel like I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of Patreon, which we, we love our Patreon subscribers. You help keep this podcast going and we are always excited to have new members join our Patreon family. As you know, Michael, I hosted one of our Patreon live Zoom mixers this past Sunday, where I got to jump on a Zoom call and, and meet a bunch of our Patreon Pope popcorn subscribers. You know, you have to be at the highest level of subscription, the Pope popcorn level to attend these exclusive meetings. And um, they were, uh, yes. <laughs> what, what? I, I'm just laughing because earlier in this episode, I was praising Return of the Killer Tomatoes because I love how they make 
make fun of corporate culture. And here we are, we're like, <laughs> for an extra fee every week. <laughs> I know, and I'm like using words like exclusive. Um, if nothing else, we're very humble and we're pretty honest about the fact that we haven't even reached the break-even point yet. So let's get yeah. real. You and I, this, this show's a labor of love. And so all of you that support us, you know, we're just full of gratitude. But I wanted to just say, I had a wonderful time talking with everyone about movies as we do. You know, we had we always uh, talk about films and we we kind of couch it in different themes, but we missed you. Everyone missed you. Michael was not able to attend because, well, you were doing something else that's pretty podcast adjacent that night. It's true. While Peaches was talking to our Pope level subscribers over on the Patreon, I was out and about in the city of Los Angeles because our dear friend Phonique, aka Monique Jenkinson, who you might remember from our cabaret episode, she's traveling around with her book right now. And she stopped here for a book kiki in Los Angeles at Akbar. And I went to go see her and listen to her do a reading and cheer her on. And not only did I get to see Phonique and celebrate with her, but the evening's event was moderated by Michelle T, who has been a former guest on the show as well. You remember Michelle joined us for Rock and Roll High School. And I got to run into some of you listeners at this event, too. I saw a handful of you at Akbar. You said some very nice things about the podcast. I also spoke to a couple people who will be future guests on the show while I was there. So it was, a, it was a really nice outing and a really fun community event. And obviously I love Phonique, love her book and her insight and stories about her time doing drag in San Francisco and with you, Peaches. Was I included in the reading that she did? Did she read anything about me? Um, would you be able to verify if, if I... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think I got my answer. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. It was. It was. <laughs> it was a whole, a whole, a whole chapter dedicated to how much she loves me. I've actually read the book, and oh, I am in the book. I wouldn't say that I'm a big part of the book, but I, I was very flattered to be included. But you're blurbed on the back of the. That's book. true. So, I yeah. am on the back of the book. I'm now on the back of two books. I'm on the back of Monique's book. Faux Queen, and I'm on the back of Cassandra Peterson's book, Yours Cruelly, her Elvira autobiography. All right, and now some trivia. Can you name a book that I'm blurped on the back of? Um, let me think. Um, no. You shouldn't have to think too hard of it. It's on yours, on the back of yours. <laughs> on, 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 oh my God, how embarrassing. <laughs> oh my God. On the back of Theater of Terror, I gave you a blurb. Oh. And the reason I set you up is because I knew you wouldn't remember. <laughs> I'm terrible, about, especially about my own stuff. You know that. Yeah. One thing about that book that is so special, it's called Peaches Christ's Theater of Terror. And it's a graphic novel that's a collection of different horror stories produced and created by 33 different queer artists. It is so freaking good. It is such a great book. And yes, I'm featured in it. And I definitely advised to some degree, but mostly, mostly I was not involved in the creation of it. I am very reluctant to even call it my book because it's really the work of all these other incredible artists who really made the book fantastic. I was just lucky enough to be the person invited to sort of be the, uh, well, not the crypt keeper, <laughs> uh, but sort 
of the Elvira of the book, you know. No, it's interesting. And bringing it back to this week's topic, you know, we mentioned that Costa Dillon works in the national parks, worked in the national parks as a superintendent. And uh, Steve Peace, another of the creators of Killer Tomatoes, went on to be a state senator. And with that in mind, what's really fascinating is Peaches just gave the most politician answer of all by talking her way out (laughs) of her shame. (laughs) Oh, it's true. It's true. Well, you know, if you yourself are able to weasel your way out of um, a sticky situation, perhaps you're sticky because, you know, tomato residue has been left on your fingers after your co-host has quite literally lobbed rotten tomatoes at you for, for making a mistake publicly on a podcast. Well, then maybe you too are a child of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.